our text, which is the Matthew text that we just read on the temptations of Christ, it's a common text for the beginning of Lent. And just prior to the narrating of the temptations of Christ, in both Matthew's gospel and in Luke's gospel, something happens. Jesus is baptized at the hands of John the Baptist. What's interesting is that in Luke's account of this, after Jesus is baptized, Luke inserts a genealogy. And his genealogy traces Jesus' ancestry back. To the, it traces it all the way back and says that finally Jesus is the son of Adam. And Adam was the son of God. And Luke puts this genealogy right before this passage on the temptations. And so Luke is telling us, he's evoking, let's say, the fact that the first Adam was exiled from paradise, out into the wilderness of the uncultivated world. And Jesus goes into that wilderness here. He goes in to lead us back to paradise. And so by the way Luke sets this up, it's very clear that Jesus is the new Adam. He's the son of God that Adam should have been. But, and we've seen this a lot uh, here on Sundays, Jesus is also the new Israel. Israel was baptized at the Red Sea. And then what happened? They proceeded into the wilderness for 40 years where they were tested. And they failed. They failed. Jesus is baptized. And then, like Israel, he proceeds out into the wilderness. It's a basic water to wilderness. Red Sea to wilderness. Baptism to wilderness. Jesus is tested 40 days. And he prevails where Israel failed. So our Lord is not only undoing the ruin of Adam, he's obeying and conquering where Israel fell in the wilderness as well. This is what Jesus is doing in his obedience. But we need to say just a little bit more. In Jesus' baptism, he is being set apart as Israel's Messiah. God's beloved Son, who is the Messiah. Jesus' baptism is, is something like his public ordination to ministry. And that Messiahship, the Messiahship of the Son, the one who is the second Adam and the faithful Israel, that is being put to the test in this narrative, this temptation narrative. Now, I know that's a lot, but this context or something close to it is necessary so that we can read this text properly and discern what's happening in this well-known passage. Right. Let me put this a different way. If Jesus is the new Adam and the new Israel, the newly ordained Messiah, then we can't look at a text like this and read it as a simple moral object lesson on how to overcome temptations the way Jesus overcame temptations. Though, of course, we can learn something about overcoming temptations from the text. Right? We must see that what's going on here, what, what is transpiring, is, is happening in the one who's the head of a new humanity, the second Adam, the founder of a new Israel, the Christ the revealed Son of God, so that 
What he does here, he does for you. He does this in your place. And here, we remember that Jesus doesn't simply die for us, but he lives for you. He faces this terrible onslaught of hellish temptation on your behalf. As Calvin says, and I'm fond of this citation, you've probably heard it before, from the time he took the form of a servant, he began to pay the price for your liberation. It culminates at the cross. The price culminates there, but the price is being paid from the beginning. He conquers in this text for you. Your salvation is being won in this text. The book of Hebrews says that Jesus was tempted in all points as we are yet without sin. And therefore, because this is true of Jesus, he can sympathize with us. He can sympathize with you in your weakness. He was made like his brethren. Hebrews also says this. He was made like us in all things, had the same kind of human nature that we have. And he suffered by being tempted. Jesus suffered for you in being tempted. This is substitutionary temptation bearing. And so, again, the reason this is so important is if we don't get this right, we end up using the text as a kind of um, either law or lessons on how to overcome temptation. That is not what the text is. And if we do that, we're going to fail to see glory, the glory of the gospel of God who comes into our very temptation into our failure, into our bondage, to prevail for us, to liberate us from demonic tyranny. So that's all by way of background. The first temptation, the text then begins with Jesus being led into the Spirit, or led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil or the accuser. He's fasting like Moses and Elijah did for 40 days and nights. And it appears that hunger, surely an acute hunger, has finally set in. And the devil says to him, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. The tempter plays upon God's word of approval that was just spoken over Jesus at his baptism. He was just baptized, and God the Father said, This is my beloved Son. Behold my Son. And then the serpent says, Well, if you are the Son. So the temptation starts with, If you are the Son of God. This could be a question, uh, an attempt by Satan to question Jesus' sonship, but it's more likely an attempt to see if he can get him to use it illegitimately. The question throughout these temptations is this. What kind of son, what kind of Messiah will you be? That's the driving question of the temptation narratives. What kind of son, what kind of Messiah? All three temptations are concerned with this question. Sometimes there are 
um, attempts, too neat in my opinion, to say, well, the first temptation's about this, the second's about this, and the third's about this. I think you're seeing the same basic temptation from three angles. They escalate, with the third one being the climax. They even escalate geographically from the wilderness to the height of the, the pinnacle of the temple to a very high mountain. And so the basic question that Satan puts to Jesus is this. Will you be a son or a Messiah who seeks a kingdom without a cross? How will you seek the kingdom? And so the, the tempter's request here really is a foretaste of the Roman soldiers' words at the end of the gospel at the cross, where the Roman soldier says to Jesus, if you are the Son of God, come down off that cross. So, the first test is directed to our Lord's weakest point, his hunger at this point. And of course, surely Jesus can, can turn stones into bread. He is the bread of heaven. He's the bread multiplier, as his subsequent ministry will show. He can turn stones into bread and then turn bread into lots more bread. But at issue here is whether his divine sonship is going to be used for his own ends, even his own legitimate ends, such as food. Or will he, rather, in self-renunciation, submit to the Father's will, trusting that the Father will provide him with food when the Father determines this trial is over? What kind of son are you going to be? Remember, also, Adam, remember we said Jesus is also the second Adam. Son is the more basic category, right? The, more, the category that means Jesus is son of God. As son, he's second Adam, new Israel. But remember, Adam also fell with respect to food, this is a food temptation. This is part of why we see Jesus as the second Adam here. Adam fell with respect to food, with respect to eating what was legitimate in itself, but for, forbidden by God's word, and doing so at the bidding of the serpent. And ever since, food has been associated with death. Have you ever considered that? We eat under a curse. We eat because we're dying. And that's why we have to keep eating, because we keep dying. And the food you eat had to die. It had to be cut off from its life, even if you're a vegetarian. Leave the food out, it rots. Turn, unplug the refrigerator, the food's dead. Eating has to do with death. I'm a very charming dinner companion, though. <laughs> the, the, the food that you eat is under a curse. They don't tell you this on the Food Channel. Right? Their food is a secular sacrament. But your refrigerator, no matter how high-tech it is, is a tomb. It's a food tomb. Everything in it is dead or dying. You open that thing up, it's all dead, all dying. You're dying, 
you eat dying food. And it staves off death for a little while, so tomorrow morning you got to eat more dying food. It's only at the Lord's table and only there that we eat immortal food. There's only one immortal food in the cosmos, the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. Every other morsel is about dying. It's only because Christ triumphed over the demonic demand for illegitimate bread that we can eat the sacrament of life. Jesus is the new Adam. He passes the food test. And he gives us new food that is not subject to death. And so he replies here, it is written... Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. The text is from Deuteronomy 8, and the context is, this shouldn't surprise us now, the context is Israel's wandering in the wilderness. Jesus cites from those wilderness wanderings, where God taught them, humbled them, to teach them that they don't live by bread alone. And so again, he's the new Israel. They grumbled before the manna, they grumbled after the manna. This one's going to wait on his father, of whom he will say, my food is to do the will of my father. He's not going to provide manna in the wilderness. The the serpent is saying something like this. You could just make some manna in the wilderness. You're the son of God. Feed yourself some bread. But Jesus knows the manna that the fathers ate in the wilderness, they ate and they died. I just explained why. They ate, then they died. Jesus instead will be the bread that comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. In one sense, you could could hear him saying, I don't need to make any bread. I am the bread that gives life to the world. And so he chooses the way of the cross. He refuses to use his sonship, his divinity, for his own self-aggrandizement. He refuses to be a Messiah who avoids weakness and suffering. That's what our Lord is doing in these texts. And so the second temptation, he's taken probably by a vision to the pinnacle of the temple where Satan says, if you are the son of God, there it is again. Throw yourself down. And then the devil who knows how to quote scripture deftly cites uh, Psalm 91. God has promised he'll protect you with his angels. Psalm 91 was considered by the Jews to be actually spoken to the person of the Messiah. But Satan distorts it. He takes it out of context. The text says, God will protect those who are trusting him. But the text is not about reckless presumption. I mean, if Satan's exegesis of Psalm 91 is correct, there, there would be no Christian martyrs. He takes it in a sort of, you know, God will take care of you all the time. Nothing bad can happen to you kind of way. And again, this exchange, the second temptation, anticipates something at the end. At the time of Jesus' suffering and passion, where he appeals and says, I could appeal to my father. He would send 12 legions of angels. Instead, he chooses here and there. He chooses the way of the cross. 
You know, it's interesting. Notice Satan quotes from Psalm 91. He quotes verses 11 and 12, but he leaves out the next verse, verse 13. Let me read you what verse 13 says. It says, You shall tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent you shall trample underfoot. Indeed, that is just what Jesus is doing here in resisting the distorted satanic exegesis of the previous two verses. And so he quotes again from Scripture, this time from Deuteronomy 6. Right? It is also written, don't put the Lord your God to the test. Again, he cites from Israel's wilderness experience. And again, he passes where Israel fails. Finally, I want to say a few words about the third temptation. Here, Satan takes him up to a high mountain, shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor, promises to give these to Jesus as if they were his to give, which is a lie. But here again, we have a temptation that involves something which is legitimately Jesus. Jesus' property, or his, you know, he has a right to it. Bread is legitimate for Jesus. Protection by the angels is legitimate for Jesus. And glory is legitimate for Jesus, for he shall possess all the kingdoms of the world. Again, it's a question of timing, and the question of timing is a question of how. And in verse 8, we get Jesus' reply, get away from me or get behind me, Satan. Again, he quotes from Deuteronomy 6, again from Israel's wilderness experience. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Jesus doesn't really argue with the, the devil. He simply uses the word. Again, this is about what kind of Messiah he will be. He renounces political power on demonic terms. He renounces bread on demonic terms. He renounces self-aggrandizement centered around the temple on demonic terms. But make no mistake, he's going to be crowned King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But there can be no detente here. This is going to be a bitter war to the end, but Jesus wins this opening battle. And this war will intensify as he moves forward in his public ministry to Good Friday. But he's won this battle. He's he's begun entering the strong man's house and binding the strong man. So when we look at this text, we have to see Jesus prevailing for us, for you and for me, in our humanity. So this text is part of the very ground that you stand on, the ground for your victory over temptation. Or another way to put this is, it's not so much that you can draw lessons from the text so that you can be victorious, it's that your victory's all better, you've been wrought out in Jesus Christ in the text. And united to him, you can be victorious. Satan will use illegitimate means to give you or offer you what God promises to give you in another way and in another time. And so Jesus teaches us who want to follow him to live after the same pattern. This is the basic story of Lent. 
This is why it's so helpful to remind us of this. No kingdom without a cross. No glory without suffering. No ascent without a descent. No exaltation without humiliation. This pattern is etched upon the Christian life and upon Holy Scripture. And we're the followers of this one. And and it's because of Jesus' faithfulness in your flesh that you, in him, united to him, you can, in fact, claim the promise of 1 Corinthians 10, which says, No temptation has overtaken you, but what is common to man. But God is faithful and will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. But with the temptation also will make a way of escape that you may, may be able to endure it. Temptations will come. But so will the grace to endure because of what Jesus does for us. Beginning in our text. And he who endures to the end shall be saved. So I want to charge you. You are in this Jesus. And by this Jesus, the one who conquered in weakness... Follow him in the way of the cross. Resist the devil. He will flee from you as he fled from him. And so may the Lord grant us victory and endurance in the midst of our temptations through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.